The last investigator I met with was Dr. Guillermo Garcia Monero, who reviewed papers on MDS, AML, and APL. And to begin, he commented on a study presented by his MD Anderson colleague, Dr. Farid Ravandi, evaluating the combination of arsenic trioxide and ATRA up front with higher risk patients receiving gemtuzumab. So this is an effort that Eli Estee started when he was still at MD Anderson, and he did the frontline and the relapse studies with arsenic and atra. And I have to tell you that we were criticized. Almost people said that this was unethical for us to do. And then Farhad Ravandi had done a great job expanding these trials, and he presented data on more than 100 patients with APL referred to our center. And the data that he's presenting is a complete remission rate that is around 98%, with a follow-up that is around 115 weeks. He has survivals that are close to 90% estimated five-year survival. I think the actual number was 88 and event-free survival 86%. So once these patients make it into effective therapy, this type of combination is just dramatically changed the natural history of this disease. The gentuzumab was restricted for patients with a high Y count, greater than 10,000. That is probably the poor prognostic feature in this disease, and that may allow you to differentiate one subset of patients. It doesn't really appear that they do very differently once you treat them with this type of combinations. What I was saying earlier is that, you know, we don't really know how many patients people try to refer to them, the Anderson from our community, and never made it to our local ear and died because of bleeding complications. And I think that's the main problem, not to sit on these patients. And even if the patient ends not being an APL, it doesn't really matter if you give them some atra. So it's not that you're going to hurt a patient that is a non-APL AML because you give them a dose of ATRA. I think it's better just to err on a safety approach. But just to clarify in terms of this paper, what about the issue of gemtuzumab? Well, it's clear that patients with high Y count, you know, and some of these patients may come with Y counts of 100,000 and really bad bleeding, diathesis, etc. You need to debug them early. And we were very successful in doing this with gentuzumab. Indeed, actually, gentuzumab has very significant single-agent activity in APL. And that's why Eli incorporated this into APL type of strategies. We have now replaced this by the use of, for instance, one dose of idarubicin, 12 milligrams per meter square, in those patients with a high Y count. So the idea is to just bring down the Y count on those patients and topo 2 inhibitors do a good job, as we know from the AIDA type of trial. We are trying to revive the gentuzumab in clinical trials here at MD Anderson, but this is not something that people in the community could do right away. So I would recommend that if you have a patient with a high Y count, you basically change the gentuzumab for idarubicin, as I mentioned earlier. So on this trial, if a patient had low-risk disease, the patient was just treated with arsenic and atra. If the patient had a high Y count, then gentuzumab was incorporated. So you are right that this is not really a randomized Studies, just a study where gentuzumab was incorporated if the patient had a high Y count. So outside a protocol setting, and I know your first choice would be to put a patient on a study, but right now in general, outside a protocol setting, what's your initial therapy for APL? It will be a combination of arsenic trioxide with all transretinoic acid. You could say that if a patient presented with poor prognostic features, that is mainly a high Y count, you could incorporate one or two doses of an anthracycline to the induction therapy. Now, we used to do this with gentuzumab or gomycin, but as you know, recently this compound was taken away from our pharmacies, although there's an effort to revive it specifically for APL. So right now, for a low standard risk APL patient, I will, first of all, 
to be honest, I will ask the clinician to refer this patient to the closest academic center. I think this is a very, very rare disease. Most of the treating physicians are going to see at most one patient a year or every other year. So this is not frequent. It requires quite a lot of support in terms of coagulopathy control, etc. So it might be my opportunity with this interview to actually just tell the primary physicians to refer these patients to an academic or a center that has expertise with this group of diseases. Because what I would like to use the opportunity now is to say that Marty Talman was at our center a few months ago. And this question of how many patients really die in transit from original diagnosis or you know visit to the ER, because this still is the type of leukemia that still presents in the ER. I mean, this is one of these acute problems in medical oncology. And then the tragedy is that sometimes these patients may stay in the local ER for two or three days until someone figures out what happens. And it appears from data that Marty was presenting and some European data that probably up to 20% of these patients don't make it into effective therapy just because they die from a brain bleed or a lung bleed before they are actively treated. So I think that the message to the community is that we have very effective non-toxic therapies like arsenic and atra, but the treatment still is very complicated, very complex, and it has to be done, in my opinion, in a center that is close enough, so I'm not saying that all of them have to come to MD Anderson, although we will be happy, but it's close enough geographically so they can be seen immediately, and that the doctor should probably think about starting ATRA as soon as the patient gets into the local ER. That would be the message from these presentations. What about the issue of ARC? And there was a paper, Abstract 13, that got into the issue of ARC and standard risk APL, the French, Belgium, Swiss group. Yeah, so the same. So this group has been, and this is led by Pierre Fenot, they really had been advocates of cytarabine in APL. You know, most of us have abandoned this, the AIDA, the Pethema, you know, we have not used ARC in this setting. They have published a number of papers, like in JCO a few years ago, looking at ARASI in this situation. And here what they do is, in this abstract number 13, they look back at the study called APL2000, that they closed early because this was a randomized study looking at the effect of ARASI. Patients that did not receive ARASI did worse. So now they want to look back a few years later. I think the follow-up now is close to six years. And again, they have some data from this particular trial that suggests that RSC was superior to the non-RSC arm. But again, this is probably, in my opinion, of historical interest right now. I think that the data that we have with arsenic and atra, this data from Ravandi, is so powerful that has really replaced any of these interventions. So let's talk a little bit about AML, and let's talk about abstract 2183, Prolonged survival without complete remission in AML in patients treated with azacitidine. Yeah, this is very complicated. It's an important observation, but it may be, in a way, a little bit, if not misleading, it may mislead the practicing physician a little bit. So, as you know, there was this very important study with 5-esacitidine called A001. That is what led to the approval of esacitidine in Europe. And this was a beautiful randomized study in MDS that showed that patients that receive ASA live longer compared to those that got supportive care, low dose RAC, and potentially some form of chemotherapy. Now, that study was designed with FAB criteria, meaning that the blasts were up to 30%. So they have done a number of subset analysis of this trial, looking at patients in this now gray zone of the 20 to 30% blast. So in fact, they were in the MDS trial, but in fact, 
could be considered AML. By modern classifications, right. right. And actually, they showed that those patients with the higher rate of blast, they do very, very well with this type of approach. And then they've done analysis where they've looked at older individuals with 20 to 30%, and they do also very well. So this data is important and is the basis for an ongoing trial with 5 society in an AML that is now accruing worldwide. But as part of the A01, they also did an analysis and they found something surprising. And people that use these drugs are familiar with this, is that, you know, if you get a CR, these patients do well. But the CR rate, depending on what study you look at, is like 10 to 15%. That's the reality. But then what they found is that there was a subset of patients that did not really have a true response. They were more kind of like a stable disease that when they plotted on their survival graphs, they actually did better than those that did not get 5-Asacitadine. So in other words, you could have a situation where you're treating someone with 5-Asa with a stable disease, no clear progression, that then seems to be deriving a survival benefit. And I've seen that in my practice all the time with these hypomethylating agents. So in this study, what they've done is kind of like a retrospective analysis, looking at a couple of different populations, and they found also that this concept of not achieving a CR in AML, not in MDS, like they previously reported, is also associated with longer survival, which is interesting because this will really change our perception of this disease. You know, in AML, we always thought that you had to achieve a CR to really have any meaningful improvement of natural history. Here, these investigators are showing that it's possible that in this older AML, treated with a drug like 5-Asacitadine, even if they don't really have a true response, they may have some improvement in their natural history. What do you think the explanation is for this? Well, the explanation, in my opinion, is obvious. You know, it's possible that these drugs are just somehow controlling progression of this disease. And on top of that, as you're giving the therapy, you're also giving quite a bit of supportive care that you may or may not give, you know, if you were not going to give the primary therapy. So in a way, you are controlling the clone, maybe not totally eradicating it, but these drugs may have an effect on whatever residual hematopoiesis these patients may have that allows them to go on and on. And, you know, it appears that this is better, for instance, than doing nothing. This will be obviously important. I said earlier this is a little bit misleading because it may, in a way, depending on the experience of the treating physician, prolong therapy perhaps too much in a subset of patients that may be progressing or that could be candidates for some other therapy. So one has to be cautious about this. To be honest, though, I have to tell you that sometimes I struggle with this in my practice because, you know, you have someone six, seven months on this type of therapies with a hypomethylating agent. They've not clearly responded And now, you know, ethically, I don't know if to move them to a clinical trial or switch therapies or give them a couple of cycles. So this, even for someone that only takes care of this type of patients, that's basically a lot of what I do, sometimes can be very complicated in terms of making a decision in terms of when do you stop, when do you move to second-line therapies and so forth. But it's important to realize that it's possible that we may improve outcomes by not achieving a CR. And I think the main message is that for the community, both in high-risk MDS and AML, is that the physician really needs to continue therapy for as long as possible and not interrupt early because it's clear that once you do that, survival improves. What about the SWOG paper presented by Mikhail Sekaris, a phase two study looking at lenalidomide in previously untreated deletion 5Q AML in older patients? Very interesting. And I think that we're going to hear a lot about all this data with lenalidomide that is coming out. So What Mikhail Sekeres has done here 
is to test this concept of high dose lenalidomide that also I think they use 50 milligrams daily, basically every day of the month, for induction therapy. And this is based on data that was already presented by Dr. Big at Washington University, also using these high-dose schedules of lenalidomide. And what they found is, I think it was a response rate of around 20% or something like that, complete remission rate in this older AML with single-agent lenalidomide. This is a little bit lower than what Dr. Big from WashU presented in the non-DEL5Q. This is interesting. But I think what these studies clearly show, and I think the French had some data, that lenalidomide is going to have a role also in the higher risk and in the acute myelogenous leukemia, perhaps not a single agent type of drug, but as some form of combination, either with chemotherapy or with a hypomethylating agent. And actually, this may not only apply to the DEL5Q patients. This is something that we may see also in non-DEL5Q as an adjunct to chemotherapy. And I think we're going to see quite a bit of this because I know that there are studies already planned to look at five phase with or without lenalidomide. There's going to be some interest in developing clinical trials of induction chemotherapy with or without lenalidomide. And of course, one could think of using lenalidomide as maintenance type of approach, not at these doses, you know, at the standard doses for patients in remission, for instance, with a chromosome 5 alteration. So I think that this is laying the ground to very exciting type of trials that we may see in the next couple of years. What about abstract 655 looking at liposomal encapsulated cytarabine and daughterubicin? So this is a study by Jeff Lamset at Moffitt. We were actually part of this. And this was a phase two study that was a pre-analysis to basically decide whether this was going to be important enough to take it into a phase three approval strategy. So this CPX351 is a liposomal formulation of the combination. And there's also some molar ratio adjustment of the cytarabine with the anthracycline. Don't ask me about the details of this, but this is how this works. And presumably, this is a more effective, perhaps less toxic way to prescribe the conventional 7 plus 3 type of treatment. So they've done two studies, one in relapsed refractory and one in upfront. And this one is the one in upfront, and it was restricted to patients aged 60 to 75. And the data that they presented was positive enough that it appears that they're going to move into a randomized phase 3 approval strategy of CPX in this subgroup of patients. So the response rate was around 67% for CPX versus 50% for the other arm. So, you know, this will be important because, again, in AML, we've been trying to make an improvement for, what, 20, 30 years, and we're still stuck with 7 plus 3. So this sounds positive. And the important thing is that this was not associated with more toxicity. Indeed, actually, the mortality rate was around 5% versus 15%. That was 60-day mortality. This is all positive, and I think that this is good enough for these investigators to take this into frontline type of strategies, and perhaps even an approval at some point, if the data was confirmed. What do you think is going on mechanistically here? Do you think it's greater anti-tumor effect, less toxicity, or both? I think it's both. Uh, I think these liposomal delivery vectors are good. You know, we may not have explored them enough in this disease. As a curiosity, you know, many years ago, we had a liposomal formulation of ATRA, lipoatra. And that was an amazing drug that we used as single agent. It never got approved by the FDA. I don't really know the details. But I tell you that that was the first drug that I used in APL when I joined MD Anderson. So I think that these liposomal vehicles or vectors, I don't know what the proper word will be, are actually of importance. And perhaps we should think about trying to develop more of these combinations. But the reality is that this is an important early lead, but it needs to be tested in a true randomized phase three trial. 
Let's talk a little bit about MDS, beginning with Abstract 508, looking at lenalidomide with intensive chemotherapy and AML and high-risk MDS with deletion 5Q. So this is, again, a French study or a GFM. They have a kind of standard donorubicin, aracid type of doses, and then they added lenalidomide to this program where they gave it at a dose of 10 milligrams. Uh, they started on day one to day 21. Then they plan like six cycles of consolidation and then maintenance therapy with nalidomide. So this type of schema that a lot of us are now trying to use in AML with induction consolidation and maintenance therapy with a triple drug. I think they reported on 48 patients with the usual distributions. And it doesn't appear that adding the second drug really had a delay on recovery. And they have a response rate of around 50% with this type of approach. So I think that they concluded that you could add lenalidomide to the induction chemotherapy. It doesn't seem, and this is interesting, that there's a lot more extrematological toxicity or malosuppression. And they were kind of excited about the CR rate because they tested this in a group of patients with very poor cytogenetics that would have a lower expectation, although they really didn't compare that. It doesn't really look like their survival was significantly better. So I think that they were continuing on the study and perhaps using the higher dose donorubicin by the study in the New England Journal by Fernandez is now the standard way to give this type of approaches. I think that these studies are of importance, and I think that you're going to see more and more of this incorporation of targeted type of approaches in AML-type therapy. So you could have FLIT3 inhibitors for FLIT3 positive. You could add lenalidomide for patients with a chromosome 5 alteration and so forth. So it's pilot data. I think that you're going to see quite a bit of studies in the near future following this lead. What about abstract 976, looking at the risk of AML in patients with lower risk MDS and deletion 5Q treated with and without lenalidomide? Well, this is basically a response to the fact that lenalidomide was not approved in Europe because it appears that there was a little bit of transformation to AML on that trial. And then the European authorities, the EMEA, had some concerns in terms of the potential effect of lenalidomide in inducing AML in these patients with MDS. So here they've looked at a number of centers in the GFM, and they basically conclude that they don't really see any difference in terms of transformation in those patients that received lenalidomide versus those that did not. So I think that most of us think that this compound is safe. We think that maybe the EMEA overreacted a little bit. The reality is that we have very little information in terms of what is the natural history of patients with MDS that fail lenalidomide. And this is something that we're going to have to pay attention. There was an abstract at ASH in patients with CLL that were treated with lenalidomide that then went on to develop MDS or AML, and actually some of them had a chromosome 5 alteration that was not present at the beginning. So we don't really know the full story of this. I think this basically says that lenalidomide at the present time should be considered safe in patients with lower risk disease, and that this risk of transformation is basically something that is probably inherent to the natural history of the disease. How about abstract 439, the presence of TET2 mutations? Yeah, this is very important, very difficult, but really important. So for years, we've been trying to figure out who responds or not to 5-S-acitadine. And then a couple of years ago, a group, as you know, in France, showed that TET2 was mutated in MDS and MPNs, and there's a plethora of papers on this. So in parallel with this, a group in Harvard that is now in La Jolla showed that these TET family members are proteins that have the capacity to hydroxylate methylated cytosines. So as you know, DNA methylation is the addition of a methyl group to a cytosine, right? And when this methylation happens in areas that we call CPG islands, in gene promoters, genes are silent. So this is part of the concept of 
epigenetic silencing. And, you know, for years people thought, well, you know, we have these hypomethylating agents like 5-phasacitabine or decitabine, and then we erase these methylation patterns. Maybe you can restore genes and so forth. Nobody has really shown that in clinical trials. Maybe the studies were not powered. So that's what I was saying earlier, that people have been looking for biomarkers of response to the hypomethylating agents. So when this group in Harvard by Anjana Rao showed that these TET family members had this capacity, what this meant is that once you hydroxylate these methyl cytosines, the enzyme that maintains methylation, that is DNA methyl transferase or DMT, that is the target of the 5-phasacytidine, cannot see the methylated cytosine. I don't know if this is clear. So by being hydroxylated by this TET2 protein, the DNA methyltransferase doesn't see it. It's like it becomes like a phantom residue. So with cell division, then these methylation patterns change. And this actually was the abstract number one at ASH this year. There was the plenary poster at ASH that showed actually that these TET2 mutated myeloleukemias have different profiles in terms of DNA methylation. So then it's just logical that if this is the case, that it's possible that having a TET2 mutation may change the response rate to hypomethylating agents. So this is what this French group by Michaela Fontenay presented at ASH. So what these investigators showed at ASH is that there was a very nice correlation between the presence of TET2 mutations and response to 5-phasacitidine. And I'm going to quote the numbers so the response rate in patients with TET2 mutation was around 65% compared to 30% for the non-mutated patients. Now, there are some issues in terms of when this response was categorized, etc. But to me, the data strongly suggests that the presence of a TET2 mutation may be a biomarker of who may or may not benefit to 5-phasacitidine type of therapy, which will be very important. Now, the problem is that Mutation analysis of this gene is complex because this is a very big gene and the mutations can happen all through the sequence of the gene. And it's not clear that one mutation is more important than the other. So this is not an easy genetic test. So it will probably have to be done by, I don't know, some central vendor that have access to this deep sequencing type of approach for TET2. But if validated, and I want to emphasize that if validated, this could be perhaps the first biomarker of response to a hypomethylating agent. And as you can imagine, this could have tremendous implications in terms of targeting therapy and perhaps some of these abstracts that we talked earlier in terms of maintaining therapy for as long as possible and all that stuff, you know, may just disappear because you could use these drugs in a very selected group of patients. What fraction of patients with MDS have the TET team mutation roughly? So they reported here that it's around 13% or something like that. So depending what population you look, the numbers change. But it probably be, depending on what this is, MDS, AML, CMML, it may go from like 10 to 20%. So I would say like around 15% or so. How about abstract 603, looking at the oral azacitidine? That was your paper, of course. Yeah, but it's not because of mine. I think this is very nice. So we've been working for like three or four years now on the development of an oral hypomethylating agent. And, you know, if you treat these patients... Patients complain of having to go to the clinic seven days a month and getting these shots, and you know eventually they get the skin reactions. So last year, we already had an oral presentation with oral 5-phasacitidine that showed actually very nice safety profile. Interestingly, we showed that even if the PK was very low, we showed a response rate of around 60% in these MDSs. So what we have done here now 
is to expand on the original observation. Actually, the paper with the original phase one trial is now under revision in the JCO, so we'll see what happens with that paper. But we have expanded the schedule. So we hypothesized that if we could give seven days with safety, why we couldn't do 14 days or 21 days? And because the PK allow us to give it twice a day or three times a day, we wanted to look also at whether you could do twice a day or three times a day schedule of this therapy. So I think that what we show here is that you could use this oral compound for 14 days, 21 days with safety. But most importantly, we find actually that this type of oral low-dose approach is very effective in all ranges of MDS, both lower-risk and high-risk patients. And indeed, we're now planning a phase two analysis of oral isocytadine in low or intermediate one non-Del5Q MDS. As you see there, you know, there's quite a bit of activity in some of the schedules of the 14 days and the 21 day. So I'm very excited about this approach because this could be, in a way, a revolution to what we're talking about. You know, you saw the studies incorporating the hypomethylating agents to chemo. Well, you could have an oral. We could use an oral for maintenance therapy. And of course, you know, in low intermediate one MDS, instead for those patients that may benefit from lenalidomide, you know, most patients don't do well. I mean, they still are dependent on growth factor support, and a bulk of these patients really are not treated with any significant benefit. So we could come with an oral approach that is safe and non-toxic. This could be a major breakthrough. So I think we're going to see a lot of this in the next couple of years. Let's talk about the cytobine in MDS. We asked you to comment on three related papers from ASH. So the first one is 4032 by Dr. Jabour. Actually, I think that he has done the three of them. Here he shows that in CMML, the cytabine has activity, and this is something that we already knew and we actually have already published. And he presents data on around 17 patients. And he shows a response rate, including CRs of around 20%, and total response rate, if one was going to look at marrow CRs, PRs, HIs, of close to 50-55%. So it doesn't look like these CMMLs do less than the regular MDSs in terms of response. But it's my impression that response duration is shorter. You know, this is a more aggressive disease. And for instance, this will be a situation where if I had a patient that responds to the cytamine with CMML and was a proper candidate for transplantation, I will try to move to transplant soon because I have not really seen a lot of these CMML patients having long-term survival with this type of approach. So I think this is exciting data because of the non-toxicity of the cytamine in this setting, but for sure not a curative alternative. The one that I thought it was more interesting was 2936. And I think this is very cool. So he's looking, uh, again, Dr. Jabour, at the cytamine in patients with MDS that had received prior intensive therapy. You know, some of these patients still are considered like AML and they may go on to receive the cytamine. So they looked at some of these patients in different studies like this DACO007 and the DACO20. These are different studies that the sponsor of the cytamine has done. And they don't really see a big difference between those patients that had received prior therapy or not. So that's kind of interesting. But I think that this should not be confused with using the cytabine as a primary therapy for relapsed refractory AML-MDS. These are different issues. So I think that what this shows is that if you respond to the chemotherapy and then you lose the response, you could go and salvage these patients with the cytabine. But a different situation is that you give them therapy and they're refractory or they relapse very shortly after. My experience with this type of compounds is that the response rate is very, very low. So these are kind of different issues. It's not semantics. And our reaction many times is to use this type of hypomethylating agents as rescue type of drugs. I don't think that they work very well. And indeed, at us this year, 
there were a couple of presentations looking at this particular issue of hypomethylating agents, either 5-phase acitabine or decitabine as salvage therapy, and they are not very active. Can you provide a more global perspective on where we are with MDS and what else came out at ASH on the topic? This year, at least in the MDS, this was a year of molecular genetics. So there was a lot of data on genetic lesions in MDS. There was significantly less in the therapeutic arena. And I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to be in a situation where therapies with lenalidomide, 5-phase and decitabine are not kind of a standard. And we're looking at what's going to be the next. And we don't know yet. And I think that there's a lot of interest in looking at this disease at the molecular level. So of what many sessions were, four to six in MDS, for instance, four were devoted to whole genome sequencing approaches to MDS. And I think we're going to learn a lot from those type of studies. Actually, probably one of the best papers was by Ben Ebert from the Dana-Farber, and we were part of that effort, you know, looking at new mutations that may be prognostic. You already talked about the TET2 mutations. So I think that the landscape in these diseases is going to be how we can incorporate this new genetic information, both in MDS and in AML, into new therapies. And I think that, unfortunately, over the next few years, we're going to see more on this issue than on new therapies until we uncover what would be the next target. Sounds like personalized oncology again. If we get there. If we get there. 